welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Andy Ricketts, News Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we're discussing the cost-of-living crisis. And in our latest Good News Bulletin, we'll be hearing about an unexpected benefit of Crossrail and interesting designs for hats. In good news for people who like bad news, fresh from a devastating and ongoing global pandemic, we are now barrelling into a cost of living crisis. Energy and food prices have begun to rise and are likely to continue to go up, driven by the impact of the war in Ukraine. After a rise in the UK's energy price cap last month, average gas and electricity prices jumped by 53.5% and 95.5% respectively, compared with a year ago. Andrew Bailey, the Governor of the Bank of England, has said rising global food prices are a major worry, with prices up 6.7% in the past month and the cost of raw materials also increasing. During the pandemic, charities were hit with a double whammy of spiralling need and plummeting donations. And as we hear more and more stories of people already struggling to make ends meet, it seems likely that the current crisis will produce a similar effect. To find out more about the likely impact of the cost of living crisis on charities, we're joined by Angela Kale, Director of Consulting at the Think Tank MPC. So Angela, thank you very much for joining us. It's great to be here. Very well, it's great to have you. So yeah, just to start off, it's quite a broad question, but let's kick off with it. What impact will the cost of living have on charities in terms of the impact on the people that they are supporting, do you think? So I I think we're already seeing an, a number of, of um, cases here. And you put that question in the future tense, but but charities are already saying that they're seeing increased needs. So um, one charity that provides breakfast for, for children in schools has said that the number of children needing support per school has, has already doubled. So that's you know, kids who aren't able to get a breakfast at home, so so instead they're they're asking for it from their school. Um, Trussell Trust said that in December the need was as high as it was at the height of the pandemic. So we're we're already seeing a lot of need happening, and nearly a quarter of older households are living in fuel poverty. That means that they're spending more ten more than ten percent of their income on fuel, and that is set to rise again. So as we heard yesterday from the Ofgem chief, we're expecting another £800 rise this year. And the financial journalist Paul Lewis said that a typical fuel bill of of £2,800 a year, which is what it's expected to be from October, would be 70% of the income of an adult who's on universal credit or 88% of a single adult under 25 who's on universal credit. So you can see that being a lot of people who have to cut down on absolutely everything to survive. So we're going to see fewer people go into mental health support groups because they can't afford the bus fare there. We're going to see fewer children who are part of sports teams because their parents can't afford the petrol to take them to to matches. There'll be fewer people going to arts, charities and those sorts of things that that are considered a bit luxury. So it's not just the charities working on poverty who will be affected by this. And um, in addition, we're already seeing the secondary effects. So Mind has said that mental health problems are already on the rise because people are worried about their bills. And yesterday, there was a story that one in four users of care are in debt and the local authorities are chasing them for their bills. So imagine being reliant on care to wash or feed yourself and the local authorities taking you to court because you can't afford to pay your bills. That's a lot of mental health worries that you're going to get from that. 
Yes, and then in terms of the demand, I mean, obviously it goes without saying that demand is going to be rising, but are there particular areas where you're expecting to see um, a considerable rise in demand for charities? So I I think we're expecting to see it on like organisations that work with some of the poorest people. So you expect to see it in organisations that work with refugees where the amount that they get per week is nowhere near enough to feed them. Organisations that work with people who are leaving prison, where again, the grant that they get on leaving prison probably now isn't enough to even get them a taxi home, never mind uh, a night, uh, a bed for the night. So those sorts of um, situations are are likely to be exacerbated. And then I think that organisations that are dealing with people who are in poverty, um, which, you know, food banks, um, financial advice, those ones are, are going to be really badly affected, but also the sorts of organisations that give grants to people so that they can stay in their house and be independent. We're going to see it in a lot of different places. Mm. And what effects do you think the cost of living crisis will have on organisations as employers? So I think that's one of the sort of interesting things and one of the things where we're, we're starting to see charities talk about that a lot more now. So donors are are feeling squeezed and um, PBE has estimated that there'll be a fall in charity income of around 3% in the next year, which is about 2 billion. And Charities Advice uh, Foundation have have already said that people are starting to cut down on giving to charities. We're already seeing that that sort of reduce in, in donations. So income's likely to fall, costs are likely to go up, um, so Magic Breakfast was told us that the price of a bagel, which is you know a huge part of its offering for breakfast for for children, has gone up by seventeen percent in the past three months. Um, charities aren't subject to the energy price cap either, so their energy costs are, are doubling in many cases. So it's a it's a really tight cost squeeze that charities themselves are facing, and it's going to be much tougher if charities themselves are funded f- through a contract. So we've done a really interesting piece of work with Kent County Council that looks at uh, the contracts that they give. Um, and most of them don't cover the full costs, which will be of no surprise to anyone in the charity sector <laughs> and is a, for a variety of different reasons. But you see that the charity is already operating that service at a loss. And then more broadly, charities have told us that very few contracts have had any provision in it for the national insurance increase that came in last month. So that's had to be paid out of their own pocket. So we're we're sort of seeing that charities are saying that they don't want the contracts to simply be rolled over. They would rather retender it with all the costs that are involved in going for a new tender because they have a completely different cost base and they want to factor that in. And if they can't get that, a better option is to walk away rather than get that cost. So what that means as like employers is that essentially they feel that they can't compete on salary with other sectors. And so the roles are unfulfilled. And you see these stories of people who love working in the charity sector, but instead they're turning to Amazon because Amazon pays better. And, you know, that's not an easy choice for anyone, but you have to do it sometimes. And so, again, if we look at the care center sector, um, of which a lot, but you know, not all of which are charities, but a lot of them are, one in 10 roles there are vacant, and a quarter of charities have had to reduce the number of people they care for due to understaffing and cost pressures. 
So that means residents are being neglected, they're not having baths, their meals are late, the staff are exhausted. So these pressures on the staff are feeding through into a really bad time for the people that they're trying to help. Mm. And that does make sense in a, in a way in terms of, you know, charity workers are also employees. They are also facing this cost of living crisis, right? Prices are going up for them in their own lives. And so, of course, they would turn to employers and say, is there any chance of a pay rise? And if there isn't, you can't really blame people. As you said, it's a very difficult decision, but you can't really blame people for making that decision to then go on and, and um, you know, try and find another job. Um, so, you know, Obviously, we've, we've kind of come off the back of this pandemic, which has been very, very difficult for charities. How strong a position are charities in to meet the challenges, which, as you say, are already happening? So they're, they're in, a, in a weak position and um, we're still trying to work out exactly how strong the sector is after the pandemic and, and different elements of the sector did um, fare differently during the pandemic. But in sort of general terms, Charities are vulnerable to inflation. Um, so as I say, a lot of them already don't get paid enough to cover the full cost of delivering their contracts that end up subsidizing them from other income. And inflation also wipes out the value of reserves. So if you if you have to have a, a certain amount of your targeting, a certain amount of your expenditure, and your expenditure rises, but your assets don't, then you've got less in your reserves. There's less you can do with it. And I think we should also think about the fact that the links with donors are probably weakened because there hasn't been any in-person events in a while. So there's probably less attachment to the charitable giving that has been going on. And we've also seen that trusts and foundations up their spending throughout COVID, but it's not clear that they're going to be able to do that again. So it, it feels like this is a challenge on the scale of what we've saw with the pandemic, but it comes straight off the back of a of a already really tough time. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. The point about trusts and foundations because I did a piece um, last year looking at like, are we going to have a massive crisis next year or you know in, in the coming years because trusts and foundations were great. They really pulled out stops to help charities and to get the money on the ground quickly and to offer emergency grants. Are we are we going to see them being depleted? And the answer I got last year was, no, it should be okay. We should be all right. The market should should recover. And, you know, most of our stuff is investments and yeah, we should be fine. But I think that conversation was happening without another crisis kind of coming along. You know, I think there was an assumption that there wasn't going to be another crisis the following year. Um, so yeah, that's a really interesting point. And the pandemic didn't affect trusts and foundations in terms of their sort of operational cost base that much, whereas the cost of living crisis does, because everything I've just said about energy prices going up is as true if you're a foundation as if you're an operating charity. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. So in your view, Angela, is there anything that charities can be proactively doing now to begin mitigating the effect of this cost of living crisis? So it's a really sort of still emerging pitch. And I think what's important is to learn as much as you can about how it how it will affect you and how it will relate to your mission. And I think one of the key things is about involving users in planning your response. So inflation affects everyone, everyone differently. Um, and the only way to really understand what people need is to involve them in your decision making. And we're also going to be seeing charities make some quite tough decisions. They're going to be pulling away from services. They're going to be reducing some of the extra add-ons. So involving users would help them understand what they value and will be sort of really important there. And then I think 
one of the things that we're really keen on is both to look at data on what needs are emerging. Um, and you probably know about our local needs data bank, which brings together data from a variety of sources to help people think about what the needs in our area. But also sharing that because one of the things that we really need to do as a sector is to make a really strong case to government, like we did at the start of the pandemic, but if possible, with even stronger data, because that was one of the criticisms that the government made of the sector, that it didn't have enough data about what was going on. So right now, the national conversation has been focused a lot on the sort of political ramifications. Uh, and it's only recently that we've been starting to get a bit more about the plight of people that are impacted. Um, but charities can, can be a really strong voice here in advocating for the people that they help. Mm. I mean, you mentioned government there. That's interesting. And is there a is there a case that charities should start kind of putting together uh, some kind of uh, portfolio of demands from the government to kind of help the voluntary sector at this point? And how likely might that be of success? Yes, I think there is a case to put forward that um, that set of demands, but I'm not sure I would phrase it as helping the voluntary sector mm. because <laughs> yes. yeah. my point is that this is really about helping some of the most in, like impacted people by the cost of living crisis. Um, as I say, if, if you're spending 88% of your benefits on your fuel bill, you don't have a lot of money for anything else. So you are definitely a user of charities. Um, so it is about giving them the resource that they need to provide services to, to people, I think, here. Uh, brilliant. And, you know, we've mentioned uh, sort of COVID and sort of, you know, the ways in which charities had to kind of, you know, make requests of the government during COVID and, and sort of some of the responses that we saw. Are there any lessons from the pandemic which you think charities can take and apply to how they handle this crisis? Um, yeah, I, th I think so. So y y you mentioned earlier one of the big ones, which is about the funder response to COVID, which was like a huge shift in um, in how they behaved. And that's one of the things that we think should continue on past the pandemic, but again, becomes more important in a crisis. So more flexible funding so that charities um, are trusted to use their knowledge and local networks to achieve the biggest impact. And that's really important if, for example, Little Village has said that it's getting fewer in-kind donations, so it might need to buy some more things. You know, a, a flexible funding ena enables it to move pots of money around so it can buy things to give to people. So that's sort of one of the things. And um, I've already mentioned a greater understanding of the of the um, of the data to understand what's needed and where it's needed is sort of really important when you're getting sort of emerging and changing needs in this way. Um, but also sort of more collaboration and a more sort of systemic approach to strategy. So smaller charities working alongside larger charities, thinking about the strategy for the issue as a whole and what the place is within that rather than just um, a strategy for the own organization. But it feels a little bit like we're going back into sort of crisis governance mode with um sort of emergency board meetings and, and all of that that we had at the start of the pandemic. Obviously, staff and trustees and everyone are absolutely exhausted by, by the whole thing. So there's a need for a lot more sort of trust and forgiveness like we had during the pandemic as well. 
Yes. I mean, one charity leader told us last week that they felt that the impact on the voluntary sector of this crisis will be worse than COVID. Uh, to what extent would you agree with that? I I think there's a sense in which it will be. Uh, and it's hard to unpick it because obviously it comes at the end of COVID. There's like huge burnout already in the sector. Lots of people have worked very hard for a very long time. And then to basically not be able to go home and put the heating on will be sort of devastating to people. And lots of people will make that choice if they can to um, to go and work somewhere, somewhere else. But also, we're not quite getting the sort of community response that we had during COVID. So, you know, um, my phone isn't ringing. I'm not getting loads of emails from philanthropists saying like, what what should I be doing? Where should I be spending money now? Like I was at the start of COVID. So it doesn't feel like we're getting that same, we're all in it together sense. But as I say, need is rising. Charity staff are having to turn away people, people from food banks. They're having to make some quite tough choices, all of which is really hard for them to do. So I can imagine that it could be as bad as, as what we saw in the in the pandemic, if not worse. Mm. And obviously, this is a very difficult question to answer. But how long do you think this crisis might last? Have you got any sense of the timescales we're looking at here? So obviously, the sort of inflation that's causing the cost of living crisis has an international dimension from uh, shutdowns in China through to the Ukraine war. So I've, I've got no perspective on that at all. Um, but if you think about the fact that very few charities will be given an inflation pay rise, you know, we're talking about inflation being at 10%. I, I suspect that very few charities will be giving that. So in terms of some of the things I was talking about in the organizational pressures, you can see that having an impact for long after we've stopped talking about the cost of living crisis or inflation. So, you know, if if inflation next year is at 2%, um, it's, those costs are still a lot higher than they are now. And I will bet you anything that most charity sector workers are not getting a, a commensurate pay rise. Yeah, that makes sense. As as you say, it's obviously incredibly difficult to try and uh, sort of predict the future. And yeah, for the last two years, have taught us nothing. It's definitely it, it, nothing else that have taught us that. Um, but yeah, hopefully, you know, we have seen incredible responses from the charity sector during the pandemic. And you know, as you say, it's going to be more difficult for them to provide that. But I think there probably will still be these incredible stories of charities doing amazing work. Um, I'm trying desperately to end on a positive note, but it doesn't feel terribly positive, does it? Um, um, but no, thank you so much for joining us, Angela. And obviously, I'm sure we'll be having you back because uh, this issue is going to go on and on. And as you say, it's going to have long running ramifications for charities. So thank you very much. It's been great to talk to you both. Thank you. Each week, we're bringing you a good news bulletin, a positive or quirky news story that we've spotted in the sector. Rebecca, what have you got for us? Well, Andy, how do you feel about Crossrail? <laughs> well, 
You mean the thing that was first proposed in 1941 and opened just this week? I do indeed. That marvel of modern engineering (laughs) and planning. Well, I mean, I've always enjoyed the challenge of what do you do when you're in central London and suddenly the tube line that you're wanting to use goes down and you have to come up (laughs) with an alternative plan. This throws another option into the mix. So I'm pretty excited, I have to say. And who doesn't like shiny new trains? uh, Everybody, everybody likes a shiny new train. Yeah, that is a good point. Indeed. But as I don't live along the actual route, it probably won't make a a huge amount of difference to me on a daily basis. That is fair enough. But it turns out there is a group that it will make a difference to. And it's quite an unlikely group. uh, Birds in Essex. Right. Uh, So um, I have to give a hat tip to the podcast's resident nature lover, Emily, for finding the story (laughs) in The Guardian. Uh, Emily loves a good wildlife story. She 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 couldn't be with us today because she's at the Third Sector fundraising innovation forum um but yes she sent me this along uh to read out so on wallacey island in essex thousands of birds have already taken advantage of the benefits of this 19 billion pound 73 mile rail route um, and series of lagoons islands and bays that have been created out of 3.5 million tons of earth that were dug up during construction of crossrail's new stations and the 13 miles of twin tunnels that had to be built I want to know how they got all that earth there. They must have taken a lot of lorries. That is a lot of, yeah, a lot of dumper trucks. So the newly constructed nature reserve is run by the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. And so far, a huge range of birds have been seen on the site, including avocets, spoonbills, black-tailed godwits, little egrets, hen and marsh harriers, widgeons, teal and plover apparently. I know very little about birds. I have heard of some of those and it sounds lovely though. It sounds really delightful. I believe that's a lot of birds. Um, so this this area is called the Jubilee Marsh because naturally everything is the Jubilee at the moment. Of course. Um, and it's made up of more than 160 hectares or 400 acres of mudflats, lagoons, marshes, fish pool and grasslands where birds can catch food and make nests. And crucially, these features have all been built in a way that protects them against the rising water levels triggered by global warming. So that's that's a good news story in a way. <laughs> <laughs> it's good for the birds. It is good for the and birds. And for the wildlife. But, and it's nice to see the avocet getting a mention. Because obviously, yes. as we know, the avocet is the the used on the insignia of the RSPB because they see it as a conservation success story, which is always good. Yes. So hopefully this is a... It sounds very much like another success story for the RSPB. So amazing news. And Addy, you've got a story for us as well, haven't you? Yes. Now, you mentioned a hat tip earlier, and here are some actual hats. A bunch of top milliners have created a collection of headwear that will be auctioned off to raise funds for brain tumour research. The charity says the collection has been inspired by 70 years of Queen Elizabeth II's reign and includes designs covering every decade. So are we going to be getting like a baseball cap for the 90s and a kind of beanie for the early noughties? Is that the plan? <laughs> I don't think the Queen was really seen wearing a beanie particularly. Ah, so it's, it's, it's hats the Queen has worn throughout her reign. Okay, it's a bit more specific. Makes Indeed, more sense. yeah. So like, for example, there's one called Mayfair, which is which says on the listing that it puts a modern silhouette on a hat worn by the Queen in the 1950s. So it's all, you know, they all have a a royal thing. And to be honest, having looked at the designs, I'm pretty bowled over, to be honest. (laughs) I fedora the lot of them. I mean, this really is peak Andy Ricketts. Uh, So before things come to a head, I'm going to put a cap on these puns. (laughs) You should definitely do that. (laughs) 
<laughs> we'll be back with another episode soon so make sure you subscribe to this the third sector podcast on your favorite podcast app to be the first to know about it until then i'm andy ricketts and i'm rebecca cooney thank you to our guest angela kale and our producer aidan lyons at rethink audio we'll see you next week <laughs>